You were like a leadoff hitter, you you know, shortstop. Uh, I was either guy. hitting one or nine. No, actually, it was a pretty good two-hole hitter because I could hit behind the runner. I didn't have uh, any power, but I could, you know, place the ball. I could dink my little ground balls to the second baseman all day long. It was great. Did I assume correctly that you were an infielder or does that, uh, I don't know. Yeah. I, just, I get an infielder vibe off of you. Yeah, five foot seven on my best day. So yeah. Well, and everyone's 6'2 on Zoom, so. <laughs> Not me. I can't even pull that off. <laughs> seems like every organization is struggling with how to get the most out of its people, how to cater to each person's needs, how to acknowledge that working alone or, you know, working offsite is really useful. I think it's much more productive. It saves a lot of computation costs, but there's something to be said for getting people together and having FaceTime. And how does Kettle work to try to combine all that you need in terms of both remote work and face-to-face interaction? Yes, it's been busy since we last talked. It feels like the world is kind of coming back to this point of okay, now <laughs> say coming to an end. It's like okay, well, yeah, let's not. I wish you were wrong, but end. okay, we've we've been through a lot this last few years, but hopefully not coming to an end. But maybe the wait to see of how we're going to return is starting to come to an end. It's been you know, there was this idea that there was going to be this ceremonious return to office. It was fall twenty twenty. Then it was post Labor Day 2021, then it was early 22, but with the variants and everything that can just get, get, kept getting kicked down the road. But it feels like at this point, fingers crossed, the, the offices and companies are starting to get more serious about how they're going to embrace a, a blend of time together and time remote. And now when so you talk quick. to potential customers and stuff or about the, the, the nature of work as it exists now, and you see like the prevalence of quiet quitting, which is becoming the norm among uh, media parlance and conversation. To what extent is that really a problem? And what do you think Kettle can do to help uh, reverse the trend? I think what it comes down to is hybrid work has great promise, right? We can all have our cake and eat it too. We can have the flexibility that we've come to enjoy over the last few years, many of us for the first time. But we can also, when we do get together, it's, it's purposeful, it counts. There's a reason, there's a why behind it. But the, the challenge in hybrid work is that it's it's complex. There's a lot more that meets the eye. So a couple things at play. A, there's, you know, no playbook. This is brand new territory for everybody. And it's just, we're just at the starting line. So there aren't best practices. There's not a good sort of framework to evaluate option A versus B versus C. B, you've got uh, different stakeholders with different, desires. You've got employees that want flexibility and, you know, they've come to taste the good life and they're valuing their time differently. And then you've got managers who are want to bring their teams together, create purposeful in-person cultures, but also aren't really trained facilitators of co-location. And then you've got C-suite senior leaders who are going, okay, how are we going to approach these decisions so that they're successful, so that we attract and retain our talent, keep people engaged make smart real estate decisions. If we don't need this much space, what kind of space do we need? And hybrid works impacting sort of our two biggest line items on our P&L, people and space and facilities. So you've got a lot going on in there. And then in the absence of data and kind of clear metrics around how do you do this successfully, 
there's just a lot that has to get sorted out. So that's our product endeavors to take it all on. Right. But you're not working in a vacuum, though. You must have some best practices that you're at least trying to retain or restore or tweak. I mean, it's not like you have a blank canvas, right? Yeah. Well, we we've designed our platform to be relatively agnostic to how ever folks want to approach hybrid work. Which it would have to be, right? Because I think it's got to be adaptable given the granular nature of how employment works now. Yeah, and it's going to be test and learn for many, many companies because there is no proven playbook. Yeah, we have some things that we think are sort of best practices from what we've experienced. One is lead with empathy and from the front and embrace the transparency. You know, hey, we don't have all the answers. We're going to be figuring this out together versus... You know, we've seen like with Apple and others, this top-down dictator, prescripted approach. But then you have other leaders like Andy Jassy at Amazon who said, look, we're going to help. We have empathy for this. We we acknowledge it's not a one-size-fits-all. We're going to push a lot of the decisions to the team level because you guys know the players and the nature of work. And that's been praised. And, and we agree. We think kind of working on the team level is really important having some transparency, gathering information and data and bringing it back. And then you've got sort of this dichotomy of like, what's a top-down rule or policy? And then what's a choice? And then who gets to call the ball on those things? So is it coming from the top? Is it coming from the team leader? Or is it up to the individual or some combination of all three of those things? Well, it's funny the way you phrased that. You phrased it, have their cake and eat it too, which is a fundamental paradox (laughs) that, you know, that's, Basically, it's Schrodinger's workspace, right? Because it's it's all the great things about both, but it's a fundamentally paradoxical situation where you've got to find to get the best out of your employees, whether they're in face to face or on their own. And you know, is it one of those things where by trying to please everyone, you're not going to please anyone, or are there viable ways to alter this work to make sure that the most people get the most out of the experience, so you do retain the people you want? Yeah, I mean, our working thesis is, yes, it's possible. It just requires a tool, the right leadership mentality, and uh, the right approach to measurement. See, when we think about hybrid work, there's a lot more questions than there are answers right now. How does the amount of time together or the approach to hybrid work impact engagement, productivity, retention? We don't know. We, th- we think that it logically would, but because it's brand new, there's no way to really extrapolate those those trends yet. But one of the things that we preach is, no matter what, just start gathering the data early because you're not sure what questions you're going to want to ask yourself. But if you have the data, you'll be able to apply it against a number of different questions and uh, scenarios so that going forward, you can start to iterate and optimize effectively. And speaking of (laughs) reconciling fundamental paradoxes, you are listening to the successfully funded podcast brought to you by KiwiTech, a growing ecosystem of entrepreneurs, investors, mentors, accelerators, incubators, and corporations. We help early and growth stage startups build viable products, drive traction, raise capital, and scale their businesses. KiwiTech is not acting as a broker, dealer, or investment advisor and is not registered with the Securities and Exchange Commission in any such capacities. At no time does KiwiTech provide investment advice, endorsement, analysis, or recommendations with respect to securities. Information contained herein should be viewed for entertainment purposes only. KiwiTech does not verify or assure that information provided by any issuer offering its securities is accurate or complete, or that the valuation of such securities is appropriate. Investing in securities, particularly in securities issued by a startup company, involves substantial risk, and investors should be able to bear the loss of their entire investment. And you can find the full text of our disclaimer on our podcast website, 
successfullyfundedpodcast.com slash disclaimer. Now, as I say, we are talking with the CEO of Kettle, which is a hybrid workspace management platform that blends booking, communication, self-organizing, and visibility centered around people connecting with a purpose. And my guest is the co-founder and CEO, Nick Iovacchini. Nick, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Doug. Excited to be here. Did I pronounce that right, by the way? Yeah, you nailed it. It, it is great. Iovacchini. One take. Okay. Yeah. All right, cool. <laughs> and as I think I mentioned, I just it's Yvakini and clam sauce. It's just it's hard to be <laughs> welcome. And so, man, the, the whole idea of hybrid work—that is the special sauce. That is the future of work, the future of family, the future of how we exist in this world. Rests so strongly on how we figure out how to be productive and yet relaxed in an age where many of us carry our offices in our back pockets and cannot get away from them. So when you chose to climb this mountain, what kind of factors did you uh, include in the storyboards when you were putting this whole endeavor together? I don't know that we had a choice in climbing this mountain. We have a pretty... We could have gone off and like opened a lemonade stand. I mean, come on. We could have. I've been there, done that. That's uh, (laughs) I know the reality of that world. Um, So... Sparing everybody gory details, we were kettle space. Oh, come on. COVID. We need gory details. Well, that's, you want you know, gory details? That's All right. Where, so, <laughs> so where else will we have rubbernecking from? We need the gory details. <laughs> the business that we started initially was around flexible work, but specifically we were a workspace company with an innovative take on workspace where we were partnering with hotels and restaurants that had excess capacity and sort of recycling unused space and making it available. So somewhere between WeWork and Starbucks, since 2016, we were pioneering that model in New York City. And it was going great up until it wasn't when COVID hit. We were sort of in all the wrong places at all the wrong times. We had several thousand paying subscribers. We had about 20 locations, seven-figure ARR, all the good stuff. But um, we went to zero in a day. And the path to get here where we are began when we went to zero without a business to operate, no revenue, no operations, no growth, and no no end in sight when everything was so uncertain, we just started doing a lot of uh, research. We were talking to leaders at all types of companies in all different positions. What's keeping you up at night? What are you thinking about return to work? How are you thinking about it? And that, that conversation, which we've had close to 3,000 of them at this point over the last two years, really started shaping our point of view that the future was going to be hybrid for so many companies. It just came through loud and clear through pattern recognition. It didn't sound very similar in how they were going to go hybrid, but it was kind of clear that nine to five was going to be gone. So about two years ago, right around September 2020, we said, let's double down on this intuition that the future will be hybrid and build software that can take into consideration these new problems and challenges and and sort of take what we knew from the workspace world and flexible world and pipe it into kind of a, a new software platform. So we've been through a pretty major pivot to say the least from consumer workspace company to B2B SaaS company, but it's been it's been a ride. Right, but you're still focusing as far as the actual physical workspace, you're still focusing on uh, restaurants and other businesses that uh, operate at night. Our definition of workspace is now any space where people wanna work and we're just the enabling layer of software that connects people with their spaces, whether that's HQ, WeWork, you know, a coffee shop, doesn't matter. So it's people, their their plans and their schedule in hybrid work and the places they can work from. So we're sort of that 
orchestration layer that helps people connect with people in the spaces where they want to connect for the activities that they want to be doing together. So what type of functionality does Kettle have that expands on the, the template that, say, Basecamp has put together? It's, you know, you can still interact with your documentation and there's plenty of text. So how does that, how do you build on the, the remote-only platform and then involve hybrid interaction? Yeah, so when you, when you think about hybrid, the, the, white, the new white space that exists is coordinating who's going to be working where with whom and why. Because we all showed up to the office every day and you didn't have to think about those things. And then when COVID hit, we all stayed home. And even though it was like jarring, you didn't really have to think. You just, you had one option. But in a hybrid world, you have options and you have choices and you have some recommendations or policies and rules. And all that has to come together so that when I go to the office, the people and the things that I want to do with those people have meaning. So for example, we coined a term anticipointment where you get all excited to go back to the office and uh, you know, you take a shower, put on your pants, all that good stuff that we used to do every day and you show up and nobody's there. The people that you were hoping were there aren't there. So one of the key features of our platform is providing the ability for people to plan together and be able to coordinate. Like I'm going to be there. You're going to be there without Slack text messages. And even calendars aren't really meant for this. There's a lot more sort of contextual planning that has to go into to coordinating hybrid. But in terms of working with other toolings, our philosophy is, is meet people where they are. We're not trying to add another tool. Everybody's kind of got tool fatigue at this point, but whether you're comfortable working in your calendar or integrating you know, your work into Slack, or you're just simply used to using your single sign-on, we're really trying to create integrations with the existing collaborative tooling that's out there so that it's not another thing. From the whole future of work standpoint, all of this is going to have to become sort of fully integrated and cohesive because people are just exhausted from tool after tool after tool. Yeah, tool fatigue and anticipointment. We've already got <laughs> some new coinage for the scrapbook. Would a customer therefore like populate this platform with the venues that they use? It's, is it incumbent upon each of your customers to kind of personalize this? If it's a one-stop turnkey for creating all that stuff and meeting on the fly, depending upon where the company has chosen to operate, is that kind of how it works? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, the software is all set up for self-onboarding. The The challenge that a lot of customers have is they're not even necessarily sure what their plan is. You know, you have to make some decisions around, like we were talking about earlier, what's a rule, what's a choice, who calls it, choose your own adventure. So there's a lot of that thinking <laughs> that has to go in up front. And, you know, and usually it's a combination, which makes it complicated. And that could be one team could look completely different than another team. If, if that team needed to be together more, or if the leader of that team valued co-located time more than the other, et cetera. But we help our customers configure whatever their sort of use case of hybrid work is. And we work with all different approaches. And then the idea is that you can book a desk and you can book a room. And, and there's terms out there, which you may be familiar with, like hot desking and hoteling. Our tool supports that. But it's not the end-all, be-all solution. People don't get excited to book a desk. People get excited to see the people they care about for the things that they want to do with those people. So mentorship, team building and collaboration, social activities, onboarding, new employees, like those are the things that people care about. And they care about doing it with their teammates, with their boss, with the person they're mentoring, with their work buddy that they like to have lunch with or drinks with after work. It's giving people the 
tools that they need to orchestrate those type of activities, which we found are more more impactful to the end employee than simply book a room, book a desk. As you mentioned, you basically went down to zero when the world shut down. But now on WeFunder, you've got over 1.5 mil to show as far as uh, your investor base. So what has that communication been like? What did you have to do to get that message across, particularly the message that that this particular OS works? Yeah, well, it's been, like I said, it's been a journey. Uh, it started first and foremost with our existing investors. Part of the trauma that we all experienced in March 2020 was many, many people, all of us maybe got flipped on our head in some way, shape or form. So we had to reconcile that um, with our existing investors. And that was a hard conversation when you lose the business you've been investing in for years. The challenge with COVID's impact on our businesses, there was no identifiable timeline on when the circumstances were going to change. You know, are we going to be back in three months? Or are we going to be back in three years? We had no idea. So fortunately, we had an asset light model and we were able to really compress, which was an advantage that we leveraged. We always had envisioned in that business model that that was going to be the scaling mechanism. But in our situation, that was the survival mechanism. So it started with a conversation with our existing investors. And it's not like we had a crystal ball knowing that we would ultimately take this path and end up here. So there was a a good deal of open dialogue of, you know, this is the process we're going to take to give ourselves a chance. And and what we we committed to doing were two things. One is a lot of research, which we've done through these conversations and exhaustive other surveys and whatnot, and build software where we could. Those conversations were the beginning of the pivot, sort of unbeknownst to us. We assumed we would be bringing back our legacy business, but over time and as the impact of the pandemic sort of continued to wane on co-working, and we started to get the scent that hybrid work could be a bigger opportunity. Uh, we ultimately decided that that's where we needed to put our focus. And, you know, as a startup, it's hard enough to pick where you focus, but when you're trying to do two things that are competing for resources and energy, that was sort of the the point in which we decided to to go ahead and fully cut right and, and double down on the pivot. And then uh, it's been great working on the WeFunder platform. Uh, we've had support from our existing investors as well as some new folks and getting some good commercial exposure and introductions to commercial opportunities as a result of the retail round. So let's talk a little bit about you and where the skill set comes from. Where does the entrepreneurship come from? How far back does that go? Uh, Probably all the way back. My grandfather was a man, my great grandfather were farmers. I feel like they're the the OGs of entrepreneurs working hard for as hard as you can work. So that was sort of um, in my upbringing, but I've been singing for my supper my entire career. I was also a baseball player, not a very good one, but I played in college and in baseball, you learn to deal with a lot of failure. You know, you fail seven out of 10 times, you're you're good. You fail eight out of 10 times, you suck. But somewhere in the middle is that fine line. And every time you get in the box, you have to believe that you're going to win that day. You're going to win that at bat. So I think learning to fail consistently and maintaining confidence has been a skill that has served me as a founder just because it's hard and uh, you do fail. You just got to fail fast and get back up on your feet and get going. Well, I love the baseball metaphor anyway, because I've read a lot of books about the physics of baseball and how, you know, maybe an eighth of an inch on the barrel of the bat is the difference between a pop-up and a home run and just how it is a game of minuscule measurements. You know, you look at now, they've just agreed to make the bases two and a half inches wider. Really? I miss that. To avoid collisions and spiking and so forth. But to do that, the bags are four inches closer to each other. And you put that with a pitch clock 
and suddenly stolen bases are going to go through the roof, they think. <laughs> right. Um, and you've been at the helm now. This is how many startups is this? Five, six? Yeah, somewhere in there. Yeah, they've all been different. So I've had the had the benefit of learning in different domains. But yeah, I'm sort of of the camp that 80% of it's kind of consistent and the last 20% is really a learned expertise within a field. One of the things that I think that allowed us to survive the, the pandemic blow is also just a philosophy of building a good foundation. Hopefully you use that foundation to spring towards a good opportunity that, you know, timing sends your way, but also the ability to survive the blows and the unexpected stuff. I don't know. Don't get too high. Don't get too low. I think it's part of it as well. I think when you look at the whole idea of like throughout all of your endeavors, 80% of it has been kind of a specific skill set in terms of operating a viable business with keeping your costs under control, setting a revenue goal, setting your margins, all that stuff. And that's universal. So what was your first startup idea? And um, what were the most important lessons you learned in your first attempt to try and be your own dude? <laughs> yeah, my first, it was, it was a baseball startup, believe it or not. We used to cut up the seams of a baseball and wear them around like as jewelry. Uh, it was something we did to kill time. And so <laughs> one summer I sold. And there's time to kill when you're on the There's so much watching, time to kill. Yeah. yeah. One summer I made, it was right after college, I made more money selling these baseball trinkets than I did uh, coaching. And so convinced a buddy of mine, former teammate, to start this company. We really had no idea what we what we wanted to do. We both had master's degrees and our parents thought we were nuts kind of deal. So he substitute taught and I, I bartended and, you know, we made rent that way while we worked on the business and it was all bootstrap. Everything was lessened through hard knocks. We just did not know what we were doing, but you know, we fought our way through it, got a major league license, NFL license, NBA license. We ended up selling more than 10 million products of these, you know, licensed sports accessories. Yeah, it was fun, but the big lesson was and and I can say this because we were really good friends and we are now really good friends but at the time we were successful together we we couldn't get along and part of it was two first time founders that you know you you argue about stuff that's inconsequential or you don't understand how to divide the house properly so you know everybody has their lane but the other part of it is we we really didn't have a healthy culture in our business and um you know the relationship between us was not good and everybody knew it even though we were successful the it wasn't fun we were working 80 hours 90 hours whatever but and it was wasn't the the workload it was just our culture so that was one of the, the biggest takeaways for me i i exited the business and got into my next startup and that was the first thing i wanted to fix in my next pass which was i want to build really healthy culture where it feels good to come to work for everybody that and understand what's a one-way door and what's a two-way door and spend your time on the important decisions and don't get caught up into, it's hard to see it your first time through, but the things that don't really matter. We've all seen, especially if you have an LLC or something and it's set up that you have 50-50 voting. And then what do you do if there's an impasse? You know, there's, the buck has to stop somewhere where the impasse gets broken, even among two very close people. In fact, you could argue that two friends doing business, all it can do is stress the friendship. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Do you, do you think that's a viable thing or would you, what would you recommend one way or another if you were given that opportunity again? Well, I love my co-founders and having business partners and I've had a myriad of different people that I've built businesses with. So I love the team aspect of it, but I do think it's important that somebody calls the ball. You just kind of have to have that because it's going to happen. And what I've done since the first business is you talk through the 
potential challenging situations early before there's conflict and you build sort of your own internal rules of engagement. If we get an impasse, this is how we're going to resolve it. This is what you need and care about in your life. And this is what I need and care about in my life. Can those live together in a viable business? That's another thing that I feel like often gets overlooked is people like, let's go start a business. I want to change the world. I got this great idea. And if you do that with somebody else, like maybe one person has a family or plans to have a family, the other person doesn't. And, you know, there's a conflict around how much time they want to invest. These are questions that I certainly didn't ask myself as a first time founder of like, how does my life and needs and wants of my personal life reconcile with the business that I'm building with somebody else in their life? It's, you know, easy to overlook that and just get so focused on the the business. But if that's out of whack, then, you know, you got problems. And and then conflict resolution is, at the, as you say, at the core of what the kettle is about, because so much of this platform is trying to be as many things to as many people as possible. And that includes reconciling conflict. And the fundamental conflict is how much time do you need to spend in each other's face? <laughs> yeah. And I think one of the fascinating things about this moment in in our historical time is that people are valuing their time very differently as a result of COVID. We put our heads down, we went to work every day, five days a week. It's what you did. You, it's how you feed your family. It's how you provide. All of a sudden COVID hits and that construct that was born in the industrial revolution of five days a week tethered to an office is gone. And the technology, even though you know, it was a little bumpy in the beginning, was there to support it, generally speaking. So the productivity argument went out the door because more than three quarters of companies have been at or above pre-COVID productivity levels. And now people have gotten agency or ownership back over their time. And I think that that's, to me, one of the most fascinating aspects of, of all this is time is our only resource that we all have that has a finite amount. Now, Americans, there's 65% of Americans value flexibility over, over compensation. So people value their time more than money now, which is fascinating. But at the same time, we've got 50% of people saying they would quit their jobs if they were forced to go back full time. So you can't force everybody back. You lose talent. But then you got almost 90% of people saying they want to be back some. So if you don't bring people back at all, it's possible, but it's challenging to create culture and you lose that connection. So the, the real kind of rub with hybrid is how do you balance it? How do you give flexibility, but provide transparency and mechanisms for people to connect purposefully? And it goes back to the paradox, but we think it's doable for sure. Just need the right tool. Well, it's interesting you mentioned the idea of tool fatigue. And I think one of the reasons people get fatigued by tools is that a tool is only as good as the people who use it. And many cases, when people adopt new technology, they either lack the proper training to uh, implement it properly, or just it's got to be in the right hands and it's got to be in seasoned hands. So when a company adopts Kettle as their new OS, what type of training do you have to implement or is that something that you're thinking you may need down the road that's just not in place yet that's one of the targets of your of your crowdfund well a couple a couple different things one is because hybrid work is so brand new we're of the mindset that even though the the tool is designed to be easy to self onboard and use without a lot of hands on so many companies are just in their infancy and they need a little bit more coaching and consulting, even if it's not about using the technology so much as it is how to think about some of the other things around hybrid work, behavioral change, communications, those types of things for the whole program to be successful. 
So we try to add as much value as we can, especially early days, because we're learning too. It, you know, we're learning about not just the problems that the technology solves, but how they relate tangentially to the other problem sets that are around this. We also work closely with consultants. We work with HR consultants. We work with office design consultants. We work with some other real estate-oriented data science consultants because, I mean, hybrid work is so big. There's many, many kind of aspects of it, but our lane, our swim lane are, is the, the implementation of new complexities so that everybody, employees, managers, senior leaders get their needs met and the, the data and information they need and the ability to bring that data back, whether it's to our customers or to other consultants so that folks can optimize their approach to, to hybrid work over time. And, and the, the optimization payoff can be huge. We have the ability to save companies millions of dollars a year in, in their real estate if they understand, hey, we're only going to be bringing people back half the time. We don't need as much space so they can save a lot of money. We can help landlords and other owners of, of commercial real estate better position their assets based on how the demand for office space has changed. And then we can help you know the people ops folks understand how their approach to hybrid work is impacting these really key people metrics like engagement and productivity and connectedness and ENPS and all that good stuff. So we try to help our customers get end to end, even though you know we sort of stay in our lane. So now you mentioned all of these consultants that you've worked with, which is smart, clearly, because for everything you prepare for, there's another thing you didn't. What do you think is the most surprising thing you've learned about how the OS needs to operate from these other consultants that you've worked with that you that kind of hit you straight out of the blue, like, wow, I had no idea we needed to consider that. Was there one particular thing that really surprised you in terms of something that you overlooked or maybe not didn't anticipate as much as you might have hoped? Yeah, I think one of the things that we've come to realize, especially in the last six months, so we came from co-working, we came from the space and the real estate side, prop tech. And now what we're realizing is that there is a space contingent and there's a people contingent. And before those, those functions in an organization often operated relatively siloed. It's just like they're being forced to converge, right? A solution has to work for the people leaders and the facilities, the real estate, the space leaders. And if you can pull both perspectives together, and that's not an easy feat necessarily, depending on the dynamics within a company, but once those two groups join, there's really an opportunity for everybody to win. When you are a father or a parent of tweener kids and you're they're in that perfect sweet spot they're just such wonderful company 85 percent of the time <laughs> and clearly when you began starting companies the, the girls hadn't arrived yet how do you think your overall appreciation of work-life balance which is a myth you know when you become a parent you they say it's like you you start you're wearing your heart outside your chest how do you think your perspective on hybrid work and work-life integration has changed since your daughters came along it's completely, it's completely changed. Yeah. I mean, that cliche that, you know, when your your first kid's born, your your life changes forever and can't really describe how, but it was very true. I think that's a great analogy. You're wearing your heart outside your body. It's you're vulnerable and it, it's hard to explain. I don't know how you explain it, but it's, it's just a mental shift. You stop, you're, you're no longer the center of your own universe and they are. And so it forces you to reevaluate how you're spending your time and, Personally, COVID woke me up quite a bit. You know, I was going to the city. I'm a grinder. I was going to the city every day, sometimes getting home nine, 10 o'clock at night. Thought I needed to be with the team or needed to be with certain 
customers or whatnot. And my wife did too. So we were really living that kind of bedroom commuter community life. And then COVID hit, she got to stay home. I stayed home. We started working remotely and it was a blessing for our family because I didn't, I didn't realize how much time I was given away to FaceTime to be, you know, at onsite every day. So the lifestyle of hybrid work for me is something I'm really passionate about because I've sort of seen the value in our family. I mean, we are just a closer family and without that sort of forced change, I'm pretty confident we wouldn't have course corrected, or maybe we would have, but it would have taken something, something else to, to kind of bring us back into focus. So I feel very connected to the purpose of all this. Well, it sounds like it's a course correction that came out of empathy. You know, it's your, cause your daughters are now at the point now where they're going to start listening to you less and watching. <laughs> more. Yeah, that's and happening. Learning more by just seeing how you comport yourself and how you move through the world. So do your kids know the work you're doing and what do you think they're absorbing off you from both your work ethic and also your decision to coach their soccer matches? <laughs> yeah, I, they sort of know what I do. I mean, we try to talk about it in, in ways that they can grasp. They had a lemonade stand a couple of weeks ago. We talked about <laughs> see, that was people, the profit, planet, and all the things. he was kidding, been there, done that, that. But no, <laughs> sir. He's a shadow consultant. Absolutely. <laughs> so they're either going to absorb a lot or just totally puke on all of it and reject <laughs> it all. I don't know which way it's going to go. But a running joke is that I'm always working, but I'm also present and I can unplug when I need to unplug. So for me, what's kind of been the trade is like, I need to be paying attention and plugged in when I need to plug in. But when I want to be with them, need to be with them, I'm always able to do that. But I like the trade. I think I'm on the right side of the trade. I think today, you know, it's, there's a lot of things on, on my mind about what they're absorbing and whether that's through media or through shifts in, in what's normal. I mean, I guess it's probably what every parent goes through when Absolutely. they're like, yeah. yeah. Like you can't but, afford to be the grinder who's never around for their kids because the kids need conversations. There's they do. stuff that we never saw when we were eight and you have to kind of be there to put things in context a bit and explain away a few things or, you know, find a way that the impersonal approach that if you see something on TikTok, you're aware of some of the more horrid things that happen in the world that we were blissfully ignorant of decades ago. You got to be there to provide context and comfort. And I mean, how do you feel about that? Do you have conversations? Yeah. At this point? Because they're, they're still, I mean, eight and nine, that's that's a really, right in between getting right there, yeah. a, a dose of the real world and Are they have phones still yet? believing in no no too phones, young for phones they, good yeah they do have they do have devices that they can use but not phones i'm dug in on that one the other thing we talk to them a lot about is asking whether or not the information you're getting they believe it because there's so much information it's information overload we've got you know all different media outlets with different points of view and you got social media where there's no accountability and anybody can say anything and you got deep fakes now. And it's like, I think yeah, those, those deep fakes are creepy. It's crazy. It's crazy. <laughs> like, I think we're all going to have to have that skill or maybe it'll be, you know, a technology solution or some combination, but we're going to all have to start asking whether or not we believe what we see or read or hear. And in a way that probably, you know, it's, is never before had to been scrutinized. So that's one thing that we talked to them a lot about. And, worry about yeah and a whole new echelon of media literacy just in terms of considering sources and corroborating things and maybe taking a moment to consider something before you pop off on it on twitter yeah um 
So let's talk, let's get back to, uh, uh, to Kettle a bit and talk about its future. I mean, you've got a nice base uh, of fundraising going on. You've got a, a bright future, at least. You're going to have some capital to work with. When you look at the state of the company now versus where it'll be in 24 months or so, what would you like to accomplish in terms of implementation, in terms of data to show potential customers as to how this particular platform aids productivity? Where would you prioritize your goals at this point? Well, one of the goals is to get into a financially feasible economic position. With this economy coming, you know, the ability to be at or near break even is not something that you typically are thinking about in an early stage software business, but it's something that we're pretty committed to. If nothing else, it's it's good hygiene and good, you know, fundamentals, but we're already seeing the investment landscape shifting. So, we're also really focused on these partnerships that I told you about a little bit. We have some really interesting ones with some nationally, globally recognized partners who are also in this state of figuring it out and realizing that they need some valuable data to kind of power their future. So we're really committed to starting to get the pipes flowing on that data, even if we don't know exactly what questions everybody's going to want to throw against it, just so that we're in a position of opulence when it comes to the amount of data that we have and the questions we could throw against that and completing some integrations. The platform's built. So it's just now it's a matter of being able to remove points of friction from people being able to access it, use it, maintain it. And those are those include things like integrations with human resource information systems, IoT that's in offices and buildings and kind of just making the whole thing more seamless. I think you're going to start to see sort of a consolidation as these new technologies are emerging of, of how do they how do they come together so it creates a cohesive experience for the end user and also for the people that need to analyze the information and glean insights from it. So that's that's where we're going to be focused over the next couple of years. Have you had the benefit of some feedback to work with from people, third parties or customers, the idea of like, we found that this was really useful and this was expendable or yeah. what, kind of, uh, what kind of tweaking have you been able to uh, implement? Well, in that nonlinear pivot story that I told you, the entire platform was built from listening to customers we were interviewing. Well, life is a nonlinear pivot, man. (laughs) Yeah, it was, you know, what's keeping you up at night? Wouldn't it be nice to have this? Oh, yeah, let me write that down. You would like it to do this. So we were in pure customer discovery mode in depth for a year. Fortunately, we had our heads on straight enough to be good listeners. And then in terms of kind of since the platform has been up, the feedback that we've gotten, most of the other sort of booking platforms that are out there really aren't thinking about what the individual user cares about. They don't do backflips because they book their desk, but they care about people. They care about connection. They care about good time together, whether that's social or professional. That's what people miss. And that's what people want. And our whole driving philosophy is give people what they want, make it easy for them to unlock the value they care about. And then from there, we get the data and the utilization of the platform going so that it creates more utility for the leaders that have to then make the decisions. So that's sort of our ethos. And you've alluded to insomnia a couple of times. So uh, Mm -hmm. when you think about these next couple of years, what do you see are the primary headwinds? I mean, what kind of competition do you have? Now that we're coming out of COVID a bit and it becomes a viable solution and you do have an opportunity there, you do have a bit of a blank canvas to establish yourself as a thought leader. What do you think could be the the biggest issue you'll deal with going forward? Companies are scared right now to actually take action. We've seen the blowback 
of a few leaders, Elon Musk and Apple, like we talked about earlier. Oh, well, a lot of your behavior on Elon Musk, man. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> oh, that's a podcast for another day. Um, no, but, <laughs> I've only but been the, a couple hundred thousand about them. <laughs> leadership is scared because the power dynamics between employees and employers has shifted, right? Employees now have some sway in when and where they work, which is a good thing, we think. But one of the challenges that leaders face is, well, we want to provide flexibility. We want to meet the talent demand kind of where it is. But this whole like, come in whenever you want, do whatever you want on your own terms, it really isn't going to check the boxes of what the business outcomes need to be. So I think that's still going to be one of the bigger challenges. And I feel like a year ago, everybody was ready for this ceremonious return to office event. And then Omicron and Delta kind of just took the wind out of those sails. And so now it's, you know, how do we begin to take action? So that still remains one of the bigger challenges that we face. But our, our advice to companies in, the, in those shoes is just get started. Get started, get a tool up, get some data, get some feedback, because everybody's got to have a starting point. At this point, we all have to have some other non-controllable event in our head that we would have to maneuver through. Well, yeah, I mean, you make a good point. I think people are, it's interesting when you say leadership in some cases is scared to lead and that's a fundamental problem, but don't hang around waiting for the right time or the right place to do something. Just get started. You're going to have to adapt sooner or later anyway. So why not make it sooner? Because the sooner you start figuring out what works, the sooner you'll figure it out. Well, I mean, congratulations on the uh, on the the crowdfund so far. As I say, you've got a bit uh, about over one point five million on WeFunder right now. So, uh, what's the status of your crowdfund now, and where can customers, investors, and anyone else who wants to learn more find you online? Yeah, well, our WeFunder campaign is a great place to start. WeFunder slash Kettle. Feel free to reach out to me directly. I'm Nick at kettleos.com. N I C K. He responds to his emails uh, promptly. I have to say that isn't always the case, but I've always appreciated that particular uh, aspect of your hands-on customer service. (laughs) Got to structure your day very intently to get all the emails done. But um, we're on the home stretch and excited to put our heads down and get into the future work here. Nick, it's been great to chat with you about uh, about Kettle. I am fascinated by this as someone who has worked in an office and worked at home and find great value in both. You know, when I'm writing, I have to just be in a corner and do my own thing. But I am also super chatty, which is why I love the opportunity to have a podcast and talk to folks like you. And if you could keep in mind the baritones in your life, I mean, if there were a WeWork spot that had like a cone of silence, (laughs) you know, like in Get Smart, that there were a way that I could muffle this voice that... um, is great for crowd control and terrible for cubicles. Uh, I would be uh, eternally grateful. There's some great new phone booth technology that's coming out. I've seen. <laughs> anyway, yes, thank you for listening to this episode of the Successfully Funded Podcast. I have been your host, Doug French. That has been the founder and CEO of Kettle OS, Nick Iovacchini. Nick, thanks so much for talking about your business and your daughters and your erstwhile ball playing career. And I wish you the best of luck. Awesome, Doug. Thanks so much for having me on. This is great. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening. And we will see you next time with another story about a guy who learned how to pivot by turning a double play. I'll talk to you later. <laughs>